This is Burke. It's 12 days north of Hopeless and a few degrees south of freezing to death. It's located solidly on the meridian of misery. My village. In a word, sturdy. And it's been here for seven generations, but every single building is new. We have fishing, hunting, and a charming view of the sunsets. The only problems are the pests. You see, most places have mice or mosquitoes. We have... Dragons. Most people would leave. Not us. We're Vikings. We have stubbornness issues. My name's Hiccup. Great name, I know. But it's not the worst. Parents believe a hideous name will frighten off gnomes and trolls. Like our charming Viking demeanor wouldn't do that. Morning! In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 238, How to Train Your Dragon. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And I guess, Happy New Year, if it's still okay to say that and you didn't listen to the previous episode. But Happy New Year, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, welcome back, regular returning listeners. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. As always, I'm so happy to have you all here for the history and legacy of How to Train Your Dragon, which is the second episode of Animation Season 2024. Animation Season is something that I've done basically every January and February that this podcast has been around. And it's basically what it says on the tin to celebrate animation in all of its formats and in all of its glories as well. It is a highly underrated medium and I feel like a movie like How to Train Your Dragon is remarkably and surprisingly underrated as well. But before we jump into How to Train Your Dragon, uh, just as always, thank you so much to everyone who's listened to the most recent episodes of the podcast, who's commented and reviewed the most recent episodes of the podcast. So recently we've had Home Alone finishing off 2023 and the festive season on this podcast. And the most recent episode, which was on Wally, which has several very surprising things in common with How to Train Your Dragon that I did not know about before I scheduled them next to each other. But it's actually become a bit of a fortuitous thing that they are together in animation season because it's quite a nice thing to go from Wally into How to Train Your Dragon. And like Wally, there's so much to love about How to Train Your Dragon based on a popular series of books with incredible animation and a wonderful voice cast but also some truly terrific messages, including an incredibly positive representation of disability that's rarely seen in, well, film in general, but specifically family films. Here's the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon. This is my home. 
We have fishing, hunting, and a charming view of the sunsets. The only problems are the pests. You see, most places have mice or mosquitoes. We have... dragons. Fighting dragons is everything around here. My name's Hiccup. I've always wanted to be a great Viking. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, come on, let me out. I need to make my mark. You can't lift a hammer. You can't swing an axe. You can't even throw one of these. But this will throw it for me. Yes, I hit it! I have brought down this mighty beast! Oh. No, no, no. Finish them, or they'll finish us. Everything we know about them is wrong. Yeah! You're crazy. I like that. Let me show you gently. Thank you for nothing, you useless reptile. DreamWorks How to Train Your Dragon in three days. On the island of Burke, the young Viking Hiccup wants to join his town's fight against the dragons that continually raid their town. However, his macho father and the village leader Stoic the Vast will not allow his small, clumsy, but inventive son to do so. Regardless, Hiccup ventures out into battle and downs the mysterious Night Fury dragon, but can't bring himself to kill it. Instead, Hiccup and the dragon, who he names Toothless, begin a friendship that would open up both their worlds as Hiccup learns that his people have misjudged the species and that there's an even bigger threat on the horizon. Let's run through their cast. We have Jay Baruchel as Hiccup, America Ferreira as Astrid, Gerard Butler as Stoic the Vast, Craig Ferguson as Gobba the Belch, Christopher Mintz-Plass as Fishlegs, Jonah Hill as Snotlout, TJ Miller as Toughnut and Kristen Wiig as Roughnut. How to Train Your Dragon has a screenplay by Will Davis, Dean Dubois and Chris Sanders, directed by Chris Sanders and Dean Dubois and based on How to Train Your Dragon by Cressida Cowell. And every culture on earth, whether it's East Asian, West Asian, Southeast Asian, European, African or Middle Eastern, has its own mythology surrounding dragons or dragonic creatures like serpents. And mankind seems to be intrinsically geared towards creating stories and mythologies around these noble, ferocious and terrifying monsters. Every culture has tales of monsters. Every culture has stories about overcoming a child's fear or the unknown. 
And I go into more about dragons specifically in episode 201, because that episode was all about Reign of Fire, which is a brilliantly underrated live-action dragon movie that I highly recommend, and also stars Gerard Butler. But the beginnings of How to Train Your Dragon were nothing like Reign of Fire. Cressida Cowell's childhood experiences growing up on a secluded, deserted island off the west coast of Scotland served as a loose inspiration for many of her books. Every year, the family spent four weeks of the summer and two weeks of the spring in a remote, candlelit stone house on the Inner Hebrides, fishing for food. It was the perfect place for the young Cressida's imagination to run wild because there were no roads, houses or electricity. This background would later serve as the basis for the world of Vikings and dragons in her stories and was inspired by tales of Vikings invading the Hebrides. She would play in the ruins of long-abandoned crofts, imagining what it would be like to be a Viking or to be an islander spotting the sail of a dreaded Viking longboat on the horizon. Her How to Train Your Dragon series of books, released between 2003 and 2015, focus on the experiences of protagonist Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III as he overcomes obstacles on his journey of becoming a hero the hard way. The book series has sold more than 7 million copies around the world and it wasn't long before it attracted the creative team at DreamWorks Animation, who contacted Cowell for the rights to make a movie based on the adventures of Hiccup and Toothless and the island inhabitants of Burke. The rights sat with DreamWorks until producer Bonnie Arnold became aware of it after the success of Over the Hedge. Arnold had been a producer on Toy Story for Pixar and on Tarzan for Disney before moving over to DreamWorks. When she was asked which project she wanted to work on next, she chose How to Train Your Dragon, wanting a big event movie appealing to a broad audience, but with a teenager as the main protagonist, which was something DreamWorks hadn't done before. Plus, a story about Vikings and dragons is never not going to be cool. So you have a teen protagonist with an action-adventure story and a cute sidekick. Who could they get to write and direct such an animated movie? Well, the early stages of the production were a struggle, with the story following Cowell's books more closely. Bonnie Arnold quickly realised the story just wasn't coming together and they needed fresh eyes and a more radical approach. While most of the preliminary work, including the majority of casting, had already been done, to helm the project, the studio turned to Oscar-nominated writer-director Chris Sanders and writer-director Dean Dubois. Sanders and Dubois met at Disney, working on Mulan, had their first collaboration writing and directing together on Lilo and Stitch, which had been nominated for the Best Animated Feature Oscar. So clearly they had previous, and the similarities between Stitch and Toothless are probably not accidental. That doesn't mean they were necessarily looking to stick with animation. Dean Dubois was actively pitching live-action projects with Disney and Universal, but management changes kept putting him back. He felt like going back to animation was a negative thing, you know, a step back. But as it happened, people he wanted to work with in live action wanted to consult and be partners on the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, including legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins, who I'm going to come to, and also Steven Spielberg as well. Although the books begin when dragons have been integrated into Viking society, the filmmakers realised that moving the chronology back a few years would be crucial. In order to explain how Hiccup and his bond with Toothless initiated the Viking-Dragon relationship, that resulted in the book's adventures. They chose to write an origin story exploring how their experiences together alter both Hiccup and Toothless, but also how Hiccup's differences from his father and the rest of the Viking clan are actually beneficial. Physical strength doesn't always equate to strength. 
that Hiccup can realise his potential in his own way, despite his perspectives and abilities being different. The original plot was described as being heavily loyal to the book, but it was thought to be too sweet and whimsical, and intended for a much younger audience. With Sanders and De Blois on board and Bonnie Arnold championing the project, the creative team was assembled to prioritise storytelling above everything else, and that started by building the mythology of Berg. That 300 years earlier, Vikings had sailed the seas and set up home on the island, only to find it constantly besieged by dragons. But Vikings are stubborn and refuse to leave, and so while they were constantly raided, their food stolen and homes damaged, generations of Vikings just grew up believing the stories about dragons and tried to cohabitate with them to little success. While they made changes for the screen, they tried to remain faithful to the original stories, and for anyone familiar with the book series, the most obvious would be the way they changed the dragons, making them the enemies of Berk and scaling up Toothless. He is one of the tiniest dragons in the book, but the dragon species that is the most feared in the film. To make sure they adhered to the spirit of Cressida Cowell's original book, however, they did collaborate with her at every stage of the process, and they wanted to ensure they retained true to Hiccup's character and his struggle to become the leader his father Stoic wants him to be. And like most animated movies, voice recording came first, and with a stacked character roster came a stacked cast, and that cast started with hiring Jay Baruchel. While many people think voice acting should come naturally to any actor, often it doesn't, and you end up with flat, lifeless performances. I'm not mentioning any movies, but How to Train Your Dragon needed to excel at everything, story, animation and cast, and arguably it does, on all counts, but Baruchel excelled at playing underdog characters you could root for, but also convincingly being that character who could usher in change in his society. Hiccup's perceived liabilities, his smarts and his offbeat viewpoint would become his greatest assets. Baruchel became an expert on Hiccup, the Burke Society and the Dragons, as did America Ferreira, who was fresh off her starring role in Ugly Betty, Jeffrey Katzenberg himself had persuaded Ferreira to join a DreamWorks animated project, and while the character of Astrid wasn't in the book, it was felt to give the movie a female lead character who could be fairly tough on Hiccup, but also warm and sympathetic. Astrid embodies everything this community wants from their young people. Smart, strong, capable dragon fighters. Astrid takes her role as the next generation of fighters very seriously, and so it made sense she would be the character next introduced to Toothless, and for her to accept him means the rest of the community could also accept him. It also made perfect sense that an imposing actor, someone who could convincingly sound like a Nordic commander-in-chief, would voice Stoic. And if you're going to go there, what about the former king of Sparta? And it was 300 that gave Bonnie Arnold the inspiration to hire Gerard Butler as Stoic with his booming voice and imposing physique. And Butler had played a Viking before, as well as Attila the Hun, He's used swords and shields and spears, and he made Beowulf in Iceland, so he felt equipped to play a Viking leader, but it was important he got the nuances behind the character, that he wasn't just the terrible dad trope, but a loving father who just didn't understand his son. He loves Hiccup and hides him to protect him, not because he's ashamed of him. And Butler's passion for the character also in turn inspired character animator Christoph Sarand, who edited intercuts between the animated version and of Butler in the studio recording, showing the expressive way Butler was acting during those sessions and translating that into the animation. Butler would spend four hours improvising in the first recording session and giving it real gusto. And as I'll come to later, this is not the last rodeo for Butler and this particular character. 
Well-known comedic actors Jonah Hill, Christopher Mintz-Plasse, Kristen Wiig and TJ Miller were cast as fellow wannabe dragon fighters Snout, Fishlegs, Roughnut and Toughnut. Snotlout, Fishlegs and Toughnut are all characters from the books, but they gave Toughnut a twin, Roughnut, in order to give the movie more female characters. And in order to confuse the audience into thinking which twin is which, Kristen Wiig dropped her vocal range and gave her a rough, scratchy voice. They frequently brought all of them into recording sessions together and gave them a chance to improvise and ad-lib things. And obviously the idea to reunite Jonah Hill and Christopher Mintz-Plasse post-Superbad was the main reason they were both cast, but also because the pair just got on so well in real life and constantly ad-libbed lines together. Rounding out the cast was late-night talk show host Craig Ferguson as Gobber, who'd been friends with Gerard Butler for over 25 years since they first met at the University of Glasgow. The idea of having an older mentor for Hiccup, who wasn't his father, came with Ferguson's casting, someone who could be the connected tissue between father and son, look out for Hiccup, but also throw him in the path of dragons for lols. Speaking of dragons, in Cressida Cowell's original novel, there were lots of dragons, and those dragons talked in their own language. But early on in production, the decision was made to make those dragons more animalistic in their movements and communication, which would give Hiccup and the rest of Burke a bigger challenge to overcome. But similarly to the last episode on Wally, it meant giving the dragons personality without relying on voice. The filmmakers wanted sound effects to be an early influence on the animation, especially for the dragon movements and vocalisations. For Toothless, his voice has some horse elements, whale elements and tiger elements, in addition to vocalisations and breaths that were recorded by sound designers Randy Tom and Al Nelson. The big cat stuff was useful for the aggressive Toothless, and the horse, whale and human stuff was the softer, more sympathetic side of the character. But Toothless is also dangerous, and with that in mind, the directors wanted to present him almost like a fighter jet in attack mode. He has that rising tone and various tonal whooshes that already represent his stealth and speed. His plasma blasts are more than just gas and flame. Toothless packs a mean punch with his fire and coloured laser-like blasts. The filmmakers decided to concentrate on six distinct and unique breeds of dragons from Cowell's work. These dragons are introduced briefly in the opening attack sequence, but they're really brought to life in the dragon training sequences where a dragon specimen from each breed is examined as it is thrown into the ring for successive training sessions. In another scene in the movie, Hiccup is flipping through the dragon handbook, which is literally page after page full of dragons. The filmmakers wanted the audience to understand just how big of a network of dragons surround these Vikings. Because the mythology of Burke, the Vikings and the dragons is so rich, the filmmakers went to great lengths to create their own version of Norse reality, including Scottish-accented Vikings, because Cowell's novels were based on her childhood in Scotland. They even went so far as to determine which dragon was the biggest and heaviest, among other things, because some dragons are quite long while other dragons are quite compact. Craig Ring, the visual effects supervisor, had to figure out how large the dragons were going to be. They filled each dragon with virtual ping pong balls, counted the number of balls inside and then removed them. They calculated a ratio based on factors like dragon size, length and other characteristics. And in case you're wondering, the two-headed hideous zippleback is the biggest dragon and the gronkle is second. And I'm obviously not including the red death in that measurement. The Night Fury, the most feared of all dragons, has to also be seen as the ultimate dragon. Stealthy, powerful, destructive and precise. The Vikings have never seen one due to its ability to hide in the darkness and that's why the character is black but also sleek and aerodynamic. They kept a reptilian design but also took cues from cats and wolves. 
No dragon in this world shares a trait with any other dragon, including the way it moves, its armour, its weapons and its fire. All dragons would have strengths and weaknesses and any dragon could theoretically defeat any other dragon. As the movie shows us, no dragon is safe from injury and a dragon who can't fly is immediately weakened. Matt Bayer, the head of effects, was tasked with creating the fire and the different types of fire that each of the different dragons required was the film's greatest artistic challenge. The directors were initially pitched by Bayer with the idea that each dragon would have a unique kind of fire, but they didn't want them to be so dissimilar from one another that it appeared like a disorganised collection of different concepts. Craig Ring wanted fire to be viscous, dangerous and genuinely flammable, that it should be able to burn through concrete, dirt or other materials and stick, bounce or slide off objects. A flap cycle was also created, which is a pre-animated flight cycle so that the wing flaps of huge groups of dragons can be controlled on screen. To design the look of the landscapes, the designers took inspiration from Iceland, along with taking a research trip down the volcanic US coastline from Washington to California, using the black sand beaches as a reference for the dragon's homeland. Weather was also important and added to the atmosphere with fogs and storms, adding textures and detail that most animated films forget to add. And the fog, or more specifically cloud cover, leads to the most beautiful final battle that's probably ever been put to film, and one of the largest scale scenes DreamWorks has ever attempted up to that point, the battle behind the clouds culminating in Hiccup falling into a huge column of fire. The effects team came together and hired a classic film pyrotechnician and asked him to show them the actual effects of what they were trying to create with fire. This pyrotechnician did all sorts of explosions, created blue fire, red fire, along with assorted fire blasts and blowing up glass, the team shot it on cameras that were capturing at 400 to 1,000 frames per second, which was then digitised and put in stereo so that different kinds of different textures and colours that you see in the different types of fire could be recreated in CG animation. And just like Wally, there are a lot of links to Wally in this movie, but cinematographer Roger Deakins consulted on this movie as well, working with production designer Kathy Altieri, visual effects supervisor Craig Ring, and head of layout Gil Zimmerman. Deakins had an impact on the camera work, lens selections, and lighting design. The lighting is sophisticated with deep blacks and natural or minimalistic lighting, which is a rare combination in animation. As a result, the movie has an overall effect of feeling and breathing, just like a live-action movie, but in the best way possible. And just on visuals, from the start, How to Train Your Dragon had always been envisaged as a 3D movie. And very early on, conversations were had about how to use this technology to make the audience feel like they were with Hiccup, they were at his side, and they were on his dragon, as they bonded and eventually flew in the air together. DreamWorks stereoscopic supervisor, Phil, Captain 3D McNally, worked with the filmmakers from the beginning, continuing to share his expertise of the medium, and aid them in thinking three-dimensionally at all times. Chris Sanders wasn't convinced initially that the movie would work as a 3D experience, but they designed the movie, including the flying and chase sequences, to work with 3D rather than manipulate moments to feel more 3D. And in the end, he was fully blown away by the experience, realised he was wrong, and How to Train Your Dragon is just one of those rare movies that works better in 3D. When it came to ending the movie, they realised early on that for a movie with sacrifice and consequences, the happy ending they'd originally planned just didn't work. That it never felt like the ending paid its respects to what came before, especially when they prioritised real-world physics and the danger that came with it. 
It was Jeffrey Katzenberg who felt like the movie cheated the audience out of a big ending and suggested they do an old yeller and kill Toothless. No one in the team wanted to kill Toothless. I mean, he's so cute, you could never. But they liked the idea of stirring up emotions and considering the island of Burke is disability friendly and the movie is disability friendly, why not have Hiccup lose a limb? It would show the seriousness of the situation, bond him to Toothless and say something about the extent of his sacrifice. It wasn't an easy decision to make though. As a family-friendly film, having a character lose a limb was precarious. And so they did a family test screening with parents and children to gauge feedback on the new ending. The reaction was so positive, it blew them away. No child was traumatised. No adult thought it was too twee. An eight-year-old responded, quote, It's sad because Hiccup lost something, but then he got so much more, unquote. It became the definition of how the entire trilogy would dare to be different, as well as clearly showing positivity around disability and amputees. Being an amputee doesn't make Hiccup any less of a character, less of a human being. He adapts his life around it, but it doesn't stop him achieving anything. And it's a great message for kids and most adults, to be honest. Speaking of adults, let's move over to the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. Yes, it's a strange segue. Okay, I get it. But this is the part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. For no reason other than he is the best of men. That is a fact. You don't need to look it up. It's just genuinely true. And I really struggled to find a link between Keanu and How to Train Your Dragon. And the only thing that I could find was apparently there are these cuddly toys called Squishmallows. And there is a dragon Squishmallow. Stay with me here. A dragon Squishmallow called Keanu. That is the link. That, that's it. <laughs> It's, it's very tenuous. It's one of the most tenuous ones, but it was really difficult to link Keanu to dragons because I think, obviously, on the Reign of Fire episode, I used a different reference. And my rule generally is I don't reuse the same reference twice. So I'm going down the Squishmallow Keanu dragon route this time. And hopefully, when it comes to the sequels, if I ever get round to them, I can think of something else. Maybe. But we need to talk about the music because after working on Ants, The Road to El Dorado, Chicken Run, Shrek and his previous score for Kung Fu Panda, John Powell returned to DreamWorks Animation to compose the score for How to Train Your Dragon. It is his sixth collaboration with the studio and he wrote an orchestral score that featured exotic Scottish and Irish tones with instruments like the penny whistle and bagpipes along with loud percussion, calming strings and bombastic brass. If you've ever been on TikTok recently and you've seen anyone's travel videos, you might recognise parts of the How to Train Your Dragon score from those videos because TikTok does seem to love that particular piece of music. In addition, Icelandic singer Jonsi from the band Sigur Ross composed and sang the song Sticks and Stones for the movie. Powell's work on the movie earned him a nomination for his first Academy Award, but in the end he was beaten by the score for The Social Network. So How to Train Your Dragon was originally set to be released on the 20th of November 2009, but DreamWorks decided to push the release back to the 26th of March 2010 in order to avoid being sandwiched between a couple of other 3D films, namely A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey and James Cameron's Avatar. It turned out that was a fantastic decision, when Avatar became the highest grossing movie of all time. But the new March 2010 release also came with some traffic, 
when Warner Brothers decided to convert Clash of the Titans from 2D to 3D and then release it one week after How to Train Your Dragon, which is also a 3D movie. And obviously with the lack of available 3D screens, that could potentially hurt one or both movies. That same month, representatives of the theatre business accused Paramount Pictures, the movie's distributor, of forcing theatres to screen How to Train Your Dragon over rival 3D releases Clash of the Titans and Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Despite this slight controversy, How to Train Your Dragon premiered on the 21st of March 2010 at the Gibson Amphitheatre in Universal City, California, and was theatrically released on the 26th of March 2010 in the US, where it debuted at number one. It would eventually be dethroned by aforementioned Clash of the Titans, but it would return to the number one spot in its fifth week and stay in the top ten for a total of eight weeks. On its $165 million budget, it would gross $217.6 million in the US and $277.3 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $494.9 million. It is the fifth highest grossing animated film of 2010 behind Toy Story 3, Shrek Forever After, Tangled and Despicable Me, and the 10th highest grossing movie of 2010. So that means in 2010, five out of the top 10 movies of the year were animated. And we love that for animation season. It's worth adding as well. I've also got episodes on Toy Story 3 and Tangled in the back catalogue. Go find them. Go listen to them. They are well worth your time. How to Train Your Dragon was nominated for two Oscars for Best Animated Feature and Best Original Score, losing to Toy Story 3 and The Social Network, respectively. It would also be nominated for 15 Annie Awards, winning 10. And as I mentioned last episode on Wally, this was after Disney had boycotted the Annie Awards for snubbing Wally over Kung Fu Panda and for DreamWorks offering their employees free membership to A Sea for Hollywood, which in turn gave them voting rights. So technically, DreamWorks employees were voting at the Annie Awards for DreamWorks Pictures. Listen to more about that in the previous episode on Wally. But basically, Disney and Pixar had their fingers burned by the Annie Awards again two years later when How to Train Your Dragon triumphed over Toy Story 3. And this was despite significant voting procedure and organisational changes being made. Membership in A Sea for Hollywood is open to professional animators, people who work for animation companies and fans who pay an annual fee. How to Train Your Dragon was followed by two sequels, How to Train Your Dragon 2 in 2014 and How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World in 2019. Five short films were released as well, Legend of the Bone Napper Dragon in 2010, Book of Dragons in 2011, Gift of the Night Fury in 2011, Dawn of the Dragon Racers in 2014 and How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming in 2019. A TV series based on the film premiered on Cartoon Network in autumn of 2012. Jay Baruchel, America Ferreira, Christopher Mintz-Plass and TJ Miller reprised their roles as Hiccup, Astrid, Fishlegs and Toughnut. And DreamWorks have finally done a Disney. Because there is a live-action remake of How to Train Your Dragon due for release next year. So as of recording, that is 2025. But it will be written and directed by Dean Dubois. So at least the leadership knows what it's doing with regards to story and characters. It has Mason Thames playing Hiccup, Nico Parker as Astrid, and Gerard Butler reprising his role of Stoic. So we will have to see if a live-action remake of How to Train Your Dragon is any good. But regular listeners will know how I feel about live-action remakes of animation, that it simply cannot be bettered because you can do anything in animation. 
you can't do anything with live action. So call me sceptical of this live action remake, but I will see it and I will make a judgment call on it once I do. When we talk about great animation, we talk about the animation itself as well as the characters and the visual effects. But animation, just like live action, can either be style over substance, great entertainment value, but just a little vapid. It doesn't make it any less fun or enjoyable to watch. Not every movie needs a message. But How to Train Your Dragon not only has the style, the substance, the entertainment value and a great cast, but also powerful emotional storytelling. It's no wonder that it sits at 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. It eschews the traditional one-liners of animated comedies. There aren't really any quotable lines or monologues for you to come back to. But what's very clear from the first time you watch this movie to when you go into the history and legacy of the movie on a podcast is just how much love and attention went into every aspect of making this movie. It's clear the whole creative team love these characters and that's why it's the same creative team for a whole trilogy. An extremely underrated trilogy because admittedly, I'll always go to Toy Story as the definitive animated trilogy. And yet, How to Train Your Dragon is right there. And maybe that's why it's taken so long to appear on this podcast. Maybe it's being somewhat forgotten in the plethora of excellent animated movies, not just from DreamWorks, but from other studios too. There's no doubt it doesn't deserve the praise, especially for its depictions of disability. In Burke, being an amputee isn't just normal, it's almost a rite of passage. This is a movie that doesn't marginalise or stereotype its disabled characters. It highlights them. It puts them front and centre. It gives them narrative purpose and character arcs. And in the second and third movies, Toothless and Hiccup's disabilities and prosthesis aren't really focused on at all. They're just part of who they are. Animation isn't just for children. That is one of the mantras of this podcast. But it's a powerful message for children to see positive representations of disability that disability doesn't stop you living your life and that disabilities are not defined by common stereotypes. There's also a strong message of teamwork, acceptance and tolerance and wonderful little details in the animation and characterizations, including the hesitation between Hiccup and Toothless as Hiccup outstretches his arm. The hesitation of Toothless was actually an animation mistake, but they kept it in because it worked better in context. Overall, though, the animation excels, especially in the flight sequences, it is pure exhilaration. We can all do with being a bit more like Hiccup. We may not be the strongest Viking or the biggest Viking or the most fearless Viking, but we can be the smartest, the kindest and the most empathetic. Rather than fight the dragons, maybe we should actually try to understand the dragons because maybe they're not actually the bad guys after all. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on how to train your dragon. And thank you so much for your continued support of this podcast. Just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And I am so grateful for your ears and for your support, as is every other indie podcast that you listen to. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast wherever you found it. That could help other people find this podcast. Or if you have a friend or a family member who loves animation or how to train your dragon specifically, please tell them about this podcast and about this episode. You can also find me on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd, along with many, many other places on the internet. And if you like this episode on how to train your dragons specifically, I'm going to recommend episode 201, Reign of Fire. 
because it's dragons, man. And they're great. And it's great, fun movie. The dragon animation is some of the best CG dragon work you will ever see in live action. There's a good reason for that as well. I go into it in the episode. As always, let me know what you think of my recommendations, especially if you watch the movie and especially if you enjoyed the movie that I recommend. So the next episode, we're going to something completely different. We're going into the realm of stop motion. Regular listeners of this podcast will know how much I love stop motion from the likes of companies like Aardman and Leica. This is not Aardman or Leica. This is something else. This is more of a dark fantasy musical, shall we say, which reimagines the adventures of one of the most well-known characters in cinema, a wooden puppet who comes to life and just wants to be a real boy. Set in fascist Italy during the interwar period and World War II, and a long-time passion project for Guillermo del Toro, one of my favourite directors, if not my favourite director of all time, I am going to be talking about his 2022 version of Pinocchio, which was one of three versions of Pinocchio that came out in 2022. So just to be clear, this is the 2022 Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, not any of the other Pinocchios that came out that year. But I'm incredibly excited to look into the history and legacy of Pinocchio. So please join me next week for that. And if you have enjoyed this episode and you've got a bit of spare change floating around after the New Year sales, maybe you could consider helping this podcast out. Now, I've always said that this podcast is free and it always will be free. And I continue to say that I am never going to charge you for regular episodes of this podcast. I avoid ads in this podcast because I don't like ads. And I avoid having sponsors for this podcast because I don't like the idea of having sponsors either. So Verbal Diorama really does rely on patrons to keep subscriptions going and to help pay for things like hosting and all of that sort of stuff that you don't think comes with having a podcast, but it actually does. And so if you have enjoyed listening to the history and legacy of any of my episodes that are sponsor-free and ad-free for that very reason, then maybe you could consider financially supporting this podcast. You can do it one of two ways. You can either provide a one-off tip at verbaldiorama.com slash tips, or you can sign up to the Patreon at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon, and you can join the amazing patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Fern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Stu, Brett, Philip, Michelle and Zenos. And if you do want to get in touch with me, you can. Obviously, you can on social media at Verbal Diorama on all of the social medias or you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can pop to my website, verbaldiorama.com, and you can fill out the little contact form and I will get back to you as soon as I can. And you can also find the work that I do over at filmstories.co.uk. You can find copies of the magazine and also very good articles online, most of which are not written by myself, thankfully. And finally... Okay there, bud. We're gonna take this nice and slow. Here we go, here we go. Position three, no, four.
Come on. <laughs> 